The complexity of an organism's habitat plays a critical role in the hunting and survival strategies of these species. If you've been a loyal listener to the podcast, you'll remember the episode featuring the topic of restoring Atlantic salmon back into the Great Lakes. Today, Chris Terrian of the Neff Lab joins me to talk about his work regarding the habitats that these salmon live in and how it affects the crucial daily transition from hunting to hiding. This is part two in the story of salmon revival in the Great Lakes. I'm Henry Standage, and you're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. To start, can you talk a little bit about why habitat complexity is thought to be helpful for the survival of fish such as salmon? There's really a lot of factors that uh that habitat can, brought, can provide for the fish that'll really influence its survival and performance. Having a lot of shelter, whether it be big boulders in the river, undercut banks, fallen trees, you know, coarse weed debris, that kind of stuff, it can provide some shading and result in differences in water temperature. And in those hot summer days, really, uh, really be a thermal refuge from the fish from uh, areas of really hot water. They also provide some visual isolation from predators, and that's really kind of the focus of my study. So you have, let's say, let's say an undercut bank, and you have uh, a large predatory bird circling overhead. These fish can utilize these, this complex habitat or, or these undercut banks and actually hide from these, these predators um, until they fly away. They also provide breaks from current and they cr- create slack water. So for example, you have a really big boulder and a fast moving section of water in a river, a fish could just hide behind that boulder and get a breather from fighting the current and uh, you know prevent it from wasting unnecessary energy. Finally, a lot of studies have actually shown that uh, a lot of these um, shelters or this, this complex habitat can actually increase the food availability in the system. So what I mean by that is a lot of insects will, uh, will actually uh, cement themselves to large boulders or coarse weighty debris uh, to pupate. And, and this complexity actually uh, can allow, um, let's say amphibians too, to lay their eggs in areas of slack water. So uh, just having a complex habitat rather than like a streamlined uh, channel environment, it's just, just super helpful for the, for the overall ecosystem. How far do neighboring salmon live from one another? So that's a great question. And uh, the answer really is it depends. So generally, so these salmon are, are territorial in the environment. And they take up territories in certain sections of river, depending on the characteristics. The average really is about half a meter squared. That's how usually big their territories are. But like I said, there's a lot of variability on this. Let's say you have a big dominant salmon. It, it'll you know, have a larger territory size than let's say a smaller beta individual. We also see a lot of differences in, in territory size too, depending on how much food's in the environment. If there's a lot of food you don't there's no point in defending a big territory when you could have a smaller territory and gather just as much food. And the same thing too, if there's is actually more complexity in the environment. So if there's more shelters, more bends, more uh, coarse weighty debris, it just makes it inefficient to defend a large, a large territory. So we have a smaller territory. Do salmon's personal habitats ever interact? They do, yes. Really, like I said, depends on the scenario, but we see it quite often. And I, I saw a lot of it during uh, my experiments. So sometimes, especially in like a prime feeding location, you will see the the, the overlap between territories. And uh, in that overlap, you'll see a lot of uh, 
some aggressive interactions and some some intra-specific interactions where they'll they'll bite each other, you know, fight each other just to to try to assert uh, their dominance on one another. So so we do see that. We also see a lot of interspecific interactions, which means b- between species, between different salmon types, between different trout types. So we we see a lot of those those competitive interactions. Uh, whether it's fighting for for food, prime food spots, it's really quite a quite a complex uh, kind of complex environment. We've we've seen um, in studies actually that came out of my lab. Uh, Amy Hood, a former former student uh, of Brian Neff's, she what she did was she took a bunch of different species of salmon and different members of the same species, and they, she put them in these artificial stream environments, and she really actually looked at competitive interactions in the environment. And it was quite interesting what she saw. She, she found, actually found that between some species of salmon, there's kind of like a, a niche separation. So some fish will, will hang out in the higher current, whereas some will, will, will hang out in like a, a slower moving, deeper pool section. But she actually found that these Atlantic salmon are not competitive at all. They're actually pushed out of some of their preferred habitat by more aggressive species like uh, the brown trout with the exception of really high areas of current, just because those Atlantic salmon are more streamlined. How does the habitat affect how predators are able to gather large groups of prey? So in these systems, the habitat really has a big influence. <laughs> I keep coming back to this, this comp- complex habitat, this, you know, this habitat with a lot of different structures in it. And that really influences how a large predatory fish can, uh, can forage and, and consume large groups of prey. Like you said, if, if, I, if you have a lot of different sheltering areas and a lot of places where maybe the prey could, could have hide behind and the, the, the predator can, can't see them, it really influences how they're able to forage and how much prey they can, they can obtain. Another thing to note is in these stream environments, they're actually quite small. They're not too wide. So you actually don't get too many large assemblages of, of prey species like minnows. You won't see really big schools. What is it about a fish's habitat that can influence its foraging strategy? There are a lot of factors that actually influence its foraging strategy, how much it forage, and even its timing of, of foraging. Let's say the food availability of the system. If there's a lot of food in the system, it can really change how the fish forages. If they know there's going to be food available for them, they can either forage at times that maybe offer some protection from predators. They can uh, forage for less period, like shorter periods of time because they can gather more food in a smaller period. So that's uh, how much food is in the environment really affects how they, how they forage. The seasonal water temperature, these, these fish are ectotherms and as the water temperature decreases, so does their metabolism and it, they just, have a lesser maintenance metabolism, they don't need to forage as much. Some days, especially in the, the deep winter months, they actually, these fish can go anorexic and just not feed for large periods of time because the water dips so cold in these stream environments. How do they balance that almost seesaw of being able to get food for yourself and making sure that you hide from predators? So that's a great question. And this foraging strategy, this, you know, going out to forage, versus hiding from predators is really a cost-benefit trade-off. It's like simple, simple economics. However, there's a lot of factors that, that really influence this. The amount of predation risk in the environment. If there's no predators, you can afford to, to forage whenever you want, right? But as you increase that, that predation risk, it really decreases the amount they will forage. And, and we see that in, my, uh, in some of my work where uh, we had 
fish in, in a predator high and a predator low environment. And fish in the, in the predator low environment just were able to forage so much more at, at a higher rate and were way more active than those in, that, in a high predator environment. Do shelters affect the distribution of the hunting workload from daytime to nighttime? In my study, I found there was a clear, shelter had a clear influence on when these, these fish were foraging. So these fish that had a lot of shelter were able to, they had this bimodal distribution of, of foraging. So what I mean by that is they were able to forage a lot in, during midday when they could see food the best and at night when the predation risk was lower and the most food of it was available. But fish in these, in these low shelter environments, they didn't forage essentially at all during the day and chose to only forage at night. Uh, presumably, they forage for longer periods during the night to reach, um, this, to reach satiation, whereas fish in the high shelter environments were able to, to forage you know, a little bit during the day, a little bit at night, and really break up this, these daily activity budgets. We've spent a lot of time talking about the transition from hunting to seeking refuge. For juvenile salmon, it seems that those are the only two aspects of its life. Why is that transition or shift so important? So that's important because they got to, they also not only have to balance their risk, their, you know, foraging to get big and their, you know, prevention of, of, of being killed, but they also got to hit that threshold because if, uh, you know, if not, they'll die anyways. So it's, it's really quite an interesting system to study kind of the, the ecology of this, of this, uh, cost benefit or the survival growth trade-off so yeah, it's, it's quite quite interesting part of what you've been doing is for lack of a better word trying to find the best population of atlantic salmon how do you measure this um so yeah just to elaborate on this first atlantic salmon are are a, are a major conservation concern in ontario so we used to have them in lake ontario um, up till some some reports say 1898, but late 1890s, and uh, whether they were then extirpated. And since then, they've been the focus of major stalking and, and habitat restoration programs to to try to reestablish the uh, the species. And every year, the Lake Ontario Atlantic Salmon Restoration Project and group they uh, they get together and they try to identify criteria for. Okay, how can we best try to reestablish this this population? And one of those big things is picking the best strain, right? The the strain or the the population that that will survive the best and be most likely to to establish a self-sustaining population. So right now we're we're looking at a, a number of different metrics to see how we can weigh different populations against each other and determine which one is the best. So at, at the start of this program. They really they they stocked three different species. They stocked the Lac Saint Jean population. So this population they selected based off of it was the theorized to be the closest related to the ancestral Lake Ontario population. They then selected the Lahav River population because that one was the easiest to obtain and it survived best in hatchery conditions. So it was the easiest to essentially mass produce fish for stocking programs. And their last population is the Sebago Lake population. And this population was selected because it seems to be quite hardy. It was successfully reintroduced into, or introduced into Lake Champlain. This is a lake that has a number of, of factors and, and habitat variables that are, that are similar to the Lake Ontario environment. 
and it's been like I said, it's been used to the Sebago Lake population. It actually, has been used to uh, to stock as a brood stock for Lake Huron. So they stocked uh, Atlantic salmon in, into Lake Huron through the St. Mary's River. They were able to establish there. So all these factors put together determined that this would be the best. They call it environment match for Lake Ontario. So we have these these three strains, and they really want for essentially uh, as a, to, to save costs and increase the success of the program, they really want to see, okay, which one of these three is the best or are they all? So they look at things like smoltification success and smolt migration. So what this means is uh, after stocking, you wait a year or two and you see what fish will leave the rivers and go to the lakes to spawn. And, the, and they essentially what they did was they caught all these, these migrating fish, they identified them the population using genetic tools. From this, you can determine how many fish you put in versus how many are migrating and get kind of a metric of survival. We also look at growth too, which fish are leaving bigger than, than let's say other strains. And you also look at some of the adult metrics too. The adults, after they spend their life at sea or at the, in the lake, they'll come back to, into the rivers to spawn. Again, you, you catch um, fish either using nets, fish you catch them in fish ladders, right? As they're going up dams, uh, you'll just net them and. And again, you'll identify them, the population using uh, those genetic tools and you'll see, okay, which ones are actually returning, how big are they, um, how, in how good a condition they are. So those are the metrics they, they use as a program as a whole to determine what the best strain was. What is it about the stream environment that makes it so difficult to develop self-sustaining populations? That's really a great question is really the... The, has been the bane of, of fisheries managers in Ontario for the last you know hundred years. So these streams have been so heavily modified from their original state that it really it's it's really a, a completely new system than what was originally there. So you got um, logging along the the uh, riparian areas of the the river that'll increase the water temperature. You get same thing with this removal of riparian vegetation. You actually get more erosion and uh, sedimentation in the water. So the water goes from a clear to a brown color just based off runoff. A lot of these, these creeks have been mined for gravel. So you lose a lot of that gravel substrate that the um, adults like to, to deposit their eggs in and a lot of juveniles like to hang out in uh, during their lives. A lot of removal of coarse, coarse woody debris and, and different shelters to, to channelize the river. So make it easier um, if it's a major river for shipping, for boating, and uh, a lot of development on the shore. So really it's a completely different environment. Another thing is we're trying to stock Atlantic salmon. A lot of the, the major creeks that are targeted for restoration are in the, the greater Toronto area. And this area is the, hev like the most heavily developed in all of Canada really. So you're essentially really try to bring the creeks back up to, to what as close as they were possible prior to European settlement and really give them the, the prime environment to survive. And that's really that's, that's been really difficult just based on the level of modification we had over the years. And the program hasn't had too much success over the course of its lifetime. However, things are promising. All those, uh, the habitat restoration hasn't been you know futile. We're, we're starting to see adult Atlantic sand returns and they actually opened up uh, a catch and release season for them. So you can, you can actually go fishing for Atlantic salmon in Ontario now. So that's, it's, it's, you know, it's a great time essentially to be alive if you're an angler. It's really great for the bi biodiversity of the system. 
After decades of experimentation, self-sustaining hatcheries are occurring much more regularly in Ontario, thanks in large part to work such as Chris's. If you're interested in how you can get involved, you can visit bringbackthesalmon.ca. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.